Chapter 11 of The Secret of the Sahara Kufara by Rosita Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Cities of Kufara. On January 16th, our battles began again. Unfortunately, Hassanine was ill, but he dragged himself up for a last effort. Perhaps success had gone to our heads a little for not content with visiting Taj and Jaff the religious center and the seat of government, we had lately made plans for exploring the oasis to its farthest limits. In vain, the unfortunate retinue pointed out that it would be another case of Hawawiri. The Zuyas are in two cities, they urged. There is nothing in the villages. You can throw a stone into Buma from these walls, so why tire yourselves further? We felt that this sudden thought for our comfort had an ulterior motive, so we pursued the subject. I should like to see the people, I said to Yusuf. You will see them all in the souk at Jof. Every week they come in to buy and sell. They are savages, the Zuyas who live on the edge of the oasis, and they are poor people without interest. Well, I should like to see the western end of the wadi. Yusuf looked puzzled. But you can see everything in Kufara from this mountain, he said with some truth. I was reduced to retorting that I could not see the actual houses of Tolab and Zurich. Our fat retainer had a distinct sense of humor. Nor could you see the houses of Hawawiri from our camp, he reminded. I want to meet the heads of the Zuyas, and if I go to all the villages, I can talk to them. Yusuf seized upon this happily. They can come and see you, and then you can ask them about their people. Thus word went forth from the Kaimakan that all the tribal headmen were to come to Taj to meet the important strangers, and the hour and place appointed for this most solemn council were four hours before sunset, in the house of Sidi Idris. We had anticipated battle because Abdullah had been absent for twenty-four hours, and we learned too late that he had been making a tour of the small villages, expounding the treacherous stories which had failed in the Senussi centers, but we did not expect quite such a disastrous meeting. The fifteen sheiks who appeared nearly two hours late at the rendezvous were weak and convinced that if they carried out their designs they would be acting against the wish of the Sayyids whom they respected and honored. Yet so great was their long-cherished loathing of the stranger, which had been fostered by years of isolation till it was as much a part of their creed as the Shahada or the Zaka that they were determined at all costs to prevent our penetrating farther into their country. One gradually absorbed something of the mentality of this strange, distrustful people as one sat amidst the circle of the gloomy, suspicious faces. For generations, the Zuyas have been known as a lawless tribe. Originally, they came from the Fezan by groups of families, each owning a particular headman, but they never seemed to have possessed one supreme chief. The two most famous of the ancient sheikhs were Abdullah Shikari and Hilag, though it was Agil who met Sidi bin Ali as Senussi in Mecca and told him of the strange enclosed land in the center of the Sahara, which the Zuyas had conquered from the enfeebled Tibu. The great ascetic had already set flame to the religious imagination of North Africa from Morocco eastwards, but he knew nothing of southern Libya. Yet he told the half-savage tribesmen that in a wadi near Tizerbo would be found an Iraq tree, from the wood of which the Arabs make their primitive form of toothbrushes. The tree was duly discovered, 
the miracle announced to the tribe and later agil went north again to gebel akbar and cyrenaica to offer the allegiance of his people to the great senussi kufara the original sultanate of the tibus had become since the zuia conquest some two hundred and fifty years before a danger spot to every caravan for it was a regular stronghold of brigands who lived by plunder it was a definite custom that all travellers especially merchants passing through the oasis should pay darb a duty which varied according to the value of their merchandise otherwise the caravan would be attacked and plundered before the coming of the senussi there were only palms in the oasis and the tribesmen were content with the most primitive clothes hardly better than those of the skin-clad tibus it was sidi el mahdi who introduced the jurd in the juba the dawn of civilization came with the ekwan sent by sidi ben ali but the mahdi made kufara the wonderland it is today and by extensive planting started the cultivation of grain fruit and flowers sidi idris owes some of his influence among the zuyas to the fact that he is the great mahdi's son though his own strong personality counts for much in a land where striking individuality is rare under the senussi government the zuyas were obliged to give up their organized brigandage but with such a long history of murder and plunder behind them half the tragedies of the sahara may be laid at their door it is not to be wondered at that they are still lawless and wild every man fears them and only a power as great as the senussi could hold them in check they were practically infidels before they made their submission to sidi ben ali having very nearly lapsed from islam though as they come from yemen they probably form part of the armies who followed beni sulim in the eleventh century from midian through syria and egypt to cyrenaica where some tribes settled notably the abadat asan fayed brasha hosha abid Aguahir, and mokarba with the fierce religious fanaticism which they absorbed fresh from the fervent ascetics who were enthusiastically preaching a new pure islam were mixed a hatred and scorn of all who had not received this teaching he who is not with us is against us was interpreted literally and the land was closed against the stranger be he christian or moslem it was easy therefore to understand the attitude of the white-robed figures who crouched immobile around one end of the long room they felt that they were defending not only their jealously hidden country but their religion from the strangers whom they hated and feared in their hearts they could not believe that the greatly revered sayeds had authorized our journey continual distrust and suspicion are bad daily companions they had marred and lined the brooding faces round us till there was little left to the frank fearless bedouin on one side sat hamad bukhoriam son of the man who had saved rolfs his dark narrow face set in mute obstinacy in front of us was sheikh suleiman bumatar the only spot of colour in the group for he wore a brilliant orange robe under his jurd and bush nafel garad an old man with a grey beard who occasionally poured a little oil on the troubled waters Others present were Sheikh Badr and Mabrubu Hileg. The whole assembly had made up its mind to oppose us, and they would listen to no argument. Kahalas, it is ended, it is ended. Of what use further speech, they cried. 
If you have a letter from Sidi Idris saying that you are to visit all our villages by name, then you shall go, said Bukhoriam. You know that we have the Sayed's permission to visit Kufara. No traveler can set foot beyond Jedabiyah without it. Do you think we should have risked certain death? We know that no one can hope to visit even the outskirts of your country without the consent of Sidi Idris, but we are his guests. They changed their ground. You have seen Kufara, urged Suleiman Bumatar. Joff and Taj are the Marcas, center of government. The villages are not interesting. There are no Zawiyas even. Argument was useless, for none dared give way before the others. We saw that one or two were weakening out of respect for the fact that we were guests of their rulers, but the old inherited instinct welded them together. Generally, it would be impossible to get fifteen Arabs to remain united against strong arguments for a quarter of an hour, but we were fighting a principle as profoundly part of their existence as food and drink. Kalas, Kalas, resounded from every side, and without even waiting for the usual ceremony of tea drinking, the meeting rose hurriedly. We have spoken, they said, and argument is of no avail. If you go, you go at your own risk, added Sheikh Badr. Yet before the last flow of protest, they had read the Fatha altogether to show that they honored the Sayyid in the persons of his guests. So the strange council of impulse and reason came to an end, and, as the last white-robed figure fumbled for its shoes at the edge of the matted loggia, Hassanine turned to me despondently. We have failed absolutely, he said. I would not agree. The guests had come to us strong with a great resolve, wound up to battle pitch, each man determined to support the others. Now they would separate, and each alone would have the nasty cold feel of wondering what he had done and what the final result of his action would be. Wait, said I. Very soon they will feel that they have shown us how dangerous it is to cross their borders, and they will only remember in whose house they met us. Later in the afternoon, a Mojabra merchant, Tawati Haifan, cousin of our old friend Shiib, and one of the Ekwans, Sayyid Mohammed Semim, visited us, partly to welcome and partly to console us for the behavior of the Zuyas. They are bad people, they said. They have always been like that. Then sunset came, and with it the summons to dinner in the house of many courts. The Wadi of Kufara is always beautiful, but at sunset it is magical, for the girdle of strange hills glows with wonderful mauve and violet lights, and the oasis lies half in shadow where blend the emerald and sapphire of palm and lake, half in flame where the burning sands reflect the glory of the sky. It used to make me catch my breath with the ever-new surprise as I came out of the discreet little door in the wake of the ebony slave, who took a great interest in the state of my appetite and never could understand why I could not cope with three separate breakfasts sent to me by as many hosts. I never realized more fully the remoteness of Kufara than when, after the deft-handed slaves had spirited away the huge brass tray, and with it every trace of our meal, we sat motionless beside our host in the long-shadowed room, while he silently and very slowly made his carefully prepared tea. The many high-walled courts produced a silence in that dim room of thick carpets and rare lights, as profound as the stillness of the desert. 
words even smiles would have been out of place during the little ceremony while rose-water or mint was being measured gravely by the sensitive figures of our host beyond the circle of light cast by a solitary candle in a high silver sconce were only vague forms of cushions or huge chests looming in remote corners within it was a dark thin-faced young sheik all in white from his silken kufia to his flowing jurd and beside him our grave reflective host with a vivid green shawl bordered in purple framing his bronze face and drooping over a long green jubbah which showed the richly embroidered sadari beneath a jewelled hand slowly poured drop after drop of essence into the amber glasses while the scented smoke of a little brazier drifted gently across the picture one heard time pause to catch the shadows of the thoughts that wavered between the light and the dark so mystic was the silence then suddenly and startlingly clear came the sound that perfected the harmony the cry of the muzine for the evening prayer next day a small and somewhat forlorn party descended one of the steep defiles into the wadi it consisted of hassanine and myself mounted on microscopic yet exceedingly unruly donkeys the commandant of the gendarmerie resplendent in pale gray uniform slashed and faced with red and an immense tasseled kufia with four fully armed soldiers and a most picturesque zuya sheik mohammed taifata the only tribesman who was brave enough to accompany us he was splendidly mounted on a white arab horse curved of neck and long of pastern with a scarlet saddle bow-pommeled five different colored saddle-cloths and silver stirrups rather like sharp coal scuttles gufara is narrow at the eastern end and with a break in the southern wall of the cliff where a broad space runs out beyond zurich it widens gradually as it goes west the main mass of palms begins between joff and taj and sweeps west to talak but there are several isolated groups of which those of boima and buma are the largest we rode first eastward along the foot of the cliffs and i realized as we ambled through thick pale coral sand that if one wishes to keep the impression of an enchanted valley one should never leave the heights there are beautiful spots in the valley where palm and tamarisk and rush blend their shades of green beside some unruffled lake but it is from above that one grasps the whole wonder of water and wood and decorative dark-walled towns set in the close circle of jeweled hills as we neared boima its few houses large square or oblong blocks of reddish purple standing just below the northern cliffs a little apart from its gardens the sheik grew very nervous white figures came out to look at us and he urged us away but i wanted a photograph let no one imagine it is easy to manage a wild toy donkey keep one's face completely hidden and secrete about one's pocketless person two kodaks and a spare roll of films the oasis at boma is lovely for various kinds of thorn a few dark green olives tamarisks acacias and the feathery gray trees described as firewood all mingled their foliage with the clustered palms a kilometer away is buma at one end of the oasis are a few poor dwellings of the slaves who tend the gardens some of them made of palms some of uneven sand bricks at the other there is a village of the usual dark houses 
while a lovely turquoise lake bordered with high rushes lies in the center on the southern shore where there is a stretch of rough dry salt waste we found the ruins of a large tibu fort these ancient people chose their sites well for this high round honeycomb stood on the very edge of the water its gray broken walls one with the salt stone that surrounded it and made passage difficult from the land there were one or two of the small round oven houses scattered near the lake and we wondered if Buma had been the capital of the old Tibu Kufara, then called Tazer, for this fort was bigger than anything at Busima, but roofless and windowless as usual. From the plantations of pumpkins, radishes, parsnips, onions, with neatly irrigated patches of wheat and barley, we drove our escort south down the long, flat stretch of gravelly sand to Zurich a long strip of palms chiefly owned by Sidi Idris and other Sayeds. There is no village in this southernmost oasis. It is inhabited only by the Sudani slaves who look after the dates. We stopped at a palm-leaf fence to ask a huge ebony figure in a tattered white shirt for some dates. He dived into his plated leaf tukul, reminiscent of the Sudan, and reappeared with a gourd full of large, dry, purplish dates mixed with lemon-colored unripe ones that the Arabs eat to quench their thirst. We rode the whole length of Zurich's palms, for by this time the Zuya had laid aside his suspicions and was becoming confidential. We asked him how long ago his people had come to Kafara, and he replied, My father, my grandfather, and his father have all lived here, but before then the tribe came. Sheikh Mohammed was fifty-six, so we gathered that the conquest had taken a place some hundred and fifty years ago. It is a pathetic thing that the Tibus are disappearing from the wadi even faster than the traces of their odd round houses. Only a few years ago there were about five hundred of these dark-skinned, round-faced people, with smooth hair, broad nostrils, and wide mouths, but devoid of the thick negroid lips. Now there are between fifty and a hundred. Nearly all of them live in a palm-leaf village with a few round mud hovels on the outskirts of Jaff. They are more pastoral in habit than the Arabs, so in spite of their debased position as employees of the Zuyas, they own a good many goats and sheep and a few camels. There is practically no pasturage in the wadi, only a little coarse grass or rushes by the lakes and sparse tufts of the brown mossy hatab that we saw at Busima. Therefore, there are very few flocks indeed, and milk and meat are luxuries except among the prosperous equan of Taj. Fresh water is not plentiful, for there are no springs. There is absolutely no rainfall. Sometimes, for eight consecutive years, there is not a single shower. All the gardens are irrigated from wells, but slave labor is abundant. Yet Kufara in summer must be a veritable Eden. From her grapes she makes the sweet vinegar we drank at banquets, and from her roses the essence dropped into our tea, as well as the heavier perfume used in the braziers. She has olives for oil, almonds, lemons, figs, melons, and peaches. Her leather comes from the Sudan, and the shoemakers in Joff fashion delightful red heelless shoes of soft, pliable hide without nails, but with thongs to bind round the ankles. The Tibus make baskets and rope from the palm leaves, but there is no weaving. The rich clothes of the princely Ekwan, which were our envy and admiration,
came from Egypt. Before the war, there were many caravans. One came nearly every day, which means that one was nearly always within the confines of the oasis, perhaps a weekly arrival. Now there are very few, said Sheikh Mohammed. We learned that when a caravan came from the Sudan, it consisted of a 150 camels, belonging to perhaps a dozen different merchants, who brought ivory, feathers, sandals, leather. But the smuggling of slaves had been difficult, since the stringent French law had decreed that the whole caravan should be confiscated if one slave were found in it. As a matter of fact, we had been 37 days on the route from Jedebiah, and we had not met a single caravan from Wadai, nor did any arrive while we were in Kufara. But this may have been partly due to the fact that the Bedouins preferred traveling in summer, when they can march all night and sleep most of the day. They can go farther this way without suffering from the intense cold of the winter dawn. Also, the winter is the falling time for camels in Libya, which makes traveling precarious. There is a large market in Joff twice a week, to which people come from as far off as Hawari and Tolab to barter pigeons, eggs, fowls, girbas, and foodstuffs. Slaves are not now sold in the public square on Mondays and Thursdays, but many a human bargain is arranged in the shuttered houses around it. For a hundred medjidies, one can buy a man, and for two hundred, a woman. But young girls of fourteen and fifteen fetch up to 250 medjidies, nearly 50 pounds. These be high prices, said the Zuya despondently, but the people in Barca have bought many slaves lately, and there are fewer caravans. We learned that the Tuaregs of the West had regular slave farms where they bred and sold human beings as we do cattle. You can see 60 slaves in one farm, said our guardian sheik as an instance of how uncivilized were the Zuyas before the coming of the Senussi, they told us that a certain Sheikh Mohammed Sharif went to Benghazi, the end of the world, and came back with an oil lamp, which was looked upon as a miracle by the tribesmen of Kufara. By the power of a little kerosene, he ruled them for years, giving judgments and discovering malefactors by interpreting its light. Deep in conversation, we skirted the rough, rocky ground to the south of the broad belt of Joff Palms and came to Talak at the end of the emerald maze where Sayyid Ahmed owns many gardens. A whole colony of slaves dwelt in clusters of tukuls within neat palm-leaf fences, and there were some biggish houses of sand bricks on whose flat roofs masses of dates were drying in the sun. The afternoon was far advanced by this time, but the Zuya was anxious to show us the beauty spot of the oasis, so we rode through the thickest palm groves between mounds of gray bushes until quite suddenly we came to a little round lake, whose still water reflected every frond of the palms drooping round it under the shadow of high amber banks, which shut in the pool on every side, so that ducks sported on it peacefully without fear of onlookers. It was a lovely picture with rose-red hills in the distance, but we were glad to turn our donkeys' heads homewards, and still gladder when the massive houses of Taj appeared on the most precipitous cliff in the distance. The names of the villages in Kufara are interesting, for whereas Taj means very suitably a crown, and Joff inside, Zuruk and Tolab are the names of two tribes which are still to be found in Egypt. 
Sheikh Mohammed told us that they had helped the Zuyas to conquer the unfortunate Tibu, and had received the places bearing their names as their share of the spoil. Later, however, they had grown tired of the remote valley and of the endless disputes between Zuyas and Tibus, which lasted till the coming of the Senussi, and had returned to their own country. January 18th saw the virtual end of our pilgrimage. As we took leave of Sidi Sala after our third cup of mint tea, he asked us if we would like to visit the Zawiya of the Asayad. Daily we had passed the massive block of buildings from which generally issued the sound of the chanted Quran. We knew that inside those formidable walls was the Kweba of the Mahdi, a symbol only, for the Sanusi believe their saints still living, but nevertheless the goal of all Sanusi pilgrims and the object of almost as much veneration as the tomb of the prophet. In the course of slow, dignified conversation, with a correct proportion of prolonged silences, we had delicately approached the subject of visiting the revered shrine, but no other sanction than, inshallah, had been vouchsafed us. Time and date are never suggested in the East. Thus, we had to wait patiently till the Kaima Khan was satisfied that the suitable moment had come. We passed through the large low mosque which joined the Zawiya. Rows of great square whitewashed pilasters supported the heavy wooden palm trunks forming the beams of the flat roof. It was utterly unadorned, and the mimbar was of the simplest description, without paint or carving. Yet, for a moment, as I stood on the threshold of the holy of holies of a great warrior confraternity, austere and fanatical, I forgot the troubles and dangers of a long journey. I understood something of the awe and reverence of any other shoeless pilgrim, who, after much travel, steps at last from the white mats of the mosque into the dim chamber where he will kiss the sacred kweba. For the first time I realized the great peace which comes at a journey's end, yet the long, narrow room was unlike our western idea of a shrine. Nearly the whole of the floor space was occupied by the graves of members of the Sanusi family, oblongs of desert sand with a stone edging and an upright slab at either end. A narrow, carpeted pathway ran round these to the farthest corner, where stood the Kweba of Mahdi, an arc-shaped wooden framework covered with a red cloth. As befits a creed which forbids all luxury, the simplicity of the room was striking. There was nothing to impress the pilgrim except his own passionate reverence. His worship must, of necessity, be a thing of the spirit and not of the senses. Yet that low, dim chamber in the middle of the Sahara is in its way as impressive as St. Peter's at Rome or the Temple of Heaven in Pekin. Cardinals and Mandarins may bring mixed motives to their worship, but the fierce-eyed Bedouin in rough white burnous, worn wooden rosary hanging from sun-dried fingers, prays with a strenuous simplicity and earnestness that must impress the very atmosphere with the sincerity of his devotion. Thus I felt, as, hands raised to heaven, I murmured the Bismillah Arrahman Arahim, under keen watching eyes. But when we passed out into the sunlight, the impression faded and one's guard was up again. First, there was a fight with the blacks, who had become hopelessly unruly, having been only remarkable for their absence when there was any real danger, 
they now devoted their time to eating sleeping and talking of their prowess we therefore decided to send them back to jalo by the main caravan route and go on ourselves to jagaboob this time the retinue protested in vain we had suffered too much from their fears coming in to wish to return through the continual minor panics of the zuia country the jagaboob route is considerably shorter for it cuts off the angle of jalo and above all it is utterly unknown to europeans as it necessitates at least twelve days without water some six hundred kilometers it is rarely attempted except by very large well-equipped caravans who can afford to lose a few camels by the way or by the sanusi family who can send camels laden with water on ahead to fill some reservoirs especially placed for the purpose we had seen the dangers of travelling with a moderately large and inefficient retinue so we now determined to try the other extreme we proposed to take with us only mohammed and yusuf a guide and perhaps a camel man we should have to take four camels for water alone and another two at least for fodder before we could think of luggage and provisions the latter are easy for it is of no use providing for more than seventeen days at the outside after leaving hawawiri if by that time the traveller is not safely in jagaboob he is dead for there are no wells on the route after leaving zakar three days from hawawiri altogether it would be an exciting journey and looking at the blank white space on our survey map where not even zakar was marked we longed to put a long red line across it caravans from egypt should logically do the jagabub route unless they go direct from siwa which means an extra half day without water the alternative is seven days to jalo one to butterfall and then seven to zegan and a further five to hawawiri the worst point in the more direct route is that there are four days of bad dunes just before reaching jagabub however anything was preferable to trying to keep the peace between the bedouins and sudanese for three weeks with the accompanying tale of sore feet and overladen camels water squandered fuel all used during the first few days and doubtless a delay at each well we spent most of the morning arguing with the soldiers who all apparently wanted to get married at jagaboob probably on the reward they hoped to get for accompanying us there then the visitors began to arrive which proved that the mental atmosphere was changing the chilly doubtful feeling i had predicted was beginning to trouble the zuias who had so stormily swept from our presence two days before the dark hamad bukorium was the first to come he had been one of the loudest to denounce the strangers now he said i wanted all the men to come out and meet you with drums but there was dissension what you said at the meeting was true but it would not have been good for me to have agreed with you then i was obliged to support the others for we had arranged what we were going to say beforehand this was a poor specimen of arab mentality but he was followed by an entirely different type suleiman bumatar old and much travelled very devoted to the sanusi family at the original meeting he had been calm and suave only saying that we should waste time by going to the villages now he said with very quiet dignity your words were wise but you must not judge the people here by your own countrymen egypt is the mother of the world the villagers here are very ignorant 
he then offered to accompany us to the other end of the oasis thereafter the retinue were somewhat less frightened and we went to joff without difficulty we rode along a little causeway which crossed the big curly lake in the midst of the joff palm gardens and when we came to the rough salt marsh on the farther side we found the ruins of a whole tibu village some of the houses were amazingly small but very well preserved the hard mortar smooth and always polished on the outside looking exactly like round clay ovens as at buma on the very edge of the water was a castle it appeared that the tibus fought only with spears so a strip of water was a good protection against attack therefore wherever there is a lake in the kufara or bosima oasis one is pretty certain to find the ruins of villages and primitive forts the zuyas won an easy victory because they had guns and gunpowder joff is a large native town stretching for about a kilometer in a line of solid long walls without door or window at one end is the old zabuya established by the ekwan of sidi ben ali it is an insignificant building very low with a dark bare mosque large and very well kept and in the further room the quaba of the daughters of sidi el mahdi this tomb is enclosed in a green wooden frame and hung with quantities of ostrich eggs it is much venerated and in one of the courts we saw some pilgrims from waidai fierce-looking blacks with rosaries and long palm staves the whole life of an arab town goes on within the high impenetrable walls otherwise they are cities of the dead i doubt if we saw a dozen figures in the streets of joff till we came to the tibu settlement yet it has a population of some seven hundred the women literally never set foot outside their houses the whole time i was in taj i never saw a woman except one or two elderly black slaves it must be an extraordinary life within a few square feet bounded by blind walls the ladies of the sayed's families can visit each other perhaps as in taj the houses of the senussi family are adjoining but i have never been in any eastern town where life was so reserved and aloof presumably the men gossip but if they do they do it in each other's houses for one never sees a group in the streets very occasionally one notices a grave figure with a brass ewer or humble teapot performing the necessary ablution at sunset before saying the obligatory prayers or perhaps a reflective gray-bearded individual standing at an open door the great difference between the senussi towns and any other desert city is the entire absence in the former of the cafes which usually form the centre of life and movement they vary in size and splendour but from Omdurman to Tugert, one finds in every village at least a mud-walled room with rough benches and little tables, or in the more primitive places merely a raised ledge running around the wall, where all the menfolk gossip over long-stemmed nargalas, while generally a dancer performs some variation of the dons du ventre. In Libya, smoking, drinking, and dancing girls are forbidden by the Senussi law, therefore the cafe had no raison d'etre and the towns are silent apparently deserted infinitely discreet we rode all around the scattered masses of joff's houses meeting sheib's brother ahmed el Khadri, a well-known senussi clerk who greeted us warmly and was delighted to get news of his family 
Then we climbed the little group of girds beyond the town and looked down upon the Tibu village whose headman is Saad el Tibu. Very primitive were the dwellings after the solid Zuya buildings, for the greater part were just palm-leaf huts. The men were generally tall and clad in sheepskins, the wool worn inside. Their food, when they travel, consists of powdered locusts and powdered dates mixed together. The women wore only one long dark piece of stuff, wound round them like a barracan, but generally tattered and somewhat inadequate. The young ones were distinctly pretty, with charming round faces, wide long-lashed eyes, almost black skins, but without any of the swollen negroid characteristics. As we rode back across the wadi, I discovered the right adjective for the cliffs of Kufara. Of course they were amber, a rich mellow amber, which detracted from the green of the palms, so that the gardens of Joff took on a wonderful silvery-gray appearance against the burnt gold of the hills. That night, while meticulously measuring the just proportion of tea, sugar, and spice, the Kaimakan offered to show us an original letter of Sidi bin Aliya Sanusi to the people of Wajanga on the road to Wadai. I think our enthusiastic interest pleased him, for he at once detached an immense key from his belt and gave it to a slave, who brought a casket not much bigger than the key. This was placed solemnly in the circle of light on the dark-piled carpets, and in the almost tangible silence that seemed to reign within that house, Sidi Sala reverently drew forth a single sheet of rough quarto paper, three-quarters of which was covered with minute, old-fashioned Arabic. I give the literal translation in the appendix because the letter is of historical importance as it announces the Sanusi's intention of accepting the allegiance of the Zuyas, of coming to Kafara with a tacit understanding that his rule would be accepted so far south of Wajanga. It was an exceedingly interesting document, and one fully appreciated its value in the exotic houses of Sidi bin Abed in the middle of the legendary oasis. End of chapter 11